This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au How's everyone doing today? Good. Love that. Well, my name is Matt. If I have not met you before, I would love to meet you after the service. A big welcome to everyone who is watching on the live stream this morning. We miss you guys. Can't wait to be with you in a couple of weeks' time. I would love you to keep your Bibles open at uh, 1, Peter cha- uh, 1, 1, Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. But before we get there, I wanted to briefly um, speak about our Build the House fundraiser that we have going on at the moment. So if you haven't seen one of these yet, please take this off the chair next to your, under your feet. Um, take this home. Uh, but we are midway through uh, a dream of ours uh, as we prepare to lay a foundation to purchase property one day. And I wanted to speak a little bit to that this morning. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but um, for, a, for a long time, churches, uh, at least in Australia, and probably most of the churches within the British Empire, received land packages from the government as a part of a settlement of a new area. And they just kind of went, all right, well, the Catholics can go there, the Anglicans go there, Prezies go there, Baptists go there, and everyone else is a cult, so don't worry about them. And uh, for the most part, the churches that you see scattered across every street corner in a, in a suburb all clustered together are part of a, a plan, an early town planning process that put church buildings on prominent corners of suburbs. But there are not, not every denomination has worked that way. And there are some, including the denomination that we're a part of, Christian Community Churches Australia, which operated very differently. Triple C Ost is not an historic uh, denomination like, say, the the Catholics or the Anglicans. Um, And for the most part in Sydney, most of the Triple C Ost churches purchased properties that were actually houses uh, and then converted those houses into small church buildings or what they called gospel chapels. Um, Some of them incredibly beautiful. For example, the one uh, in Balmain, City Light Balmain, has a beautiful old gospel chapel. Uh, on Darling Street there. But for, for many of them, are a bunch of families who got together and bought a house and then they converted that house into a church. They kind of like chopped it in half, knocked the back wall out and made a big hall out the back and the foyer became the entranceway to the church building. And many of these churches uh, were purchased and owned and bought over a number of years by a small family church. And they're everywhere, scattered all across New South Wales and Australia. And so this morning, what I wanted to do is just take you on a bit of a dream journey of what we could achieve as a family about purchasing some midweek. We're not talking like a a giant auditorium here to house our worship space. We're talking a midweek space that we might be able to use for all of our midweek ministries. I want you to dream with me for a second what the possibilities would be if we had a midweek space. Think about uh, our mum's GC, who at the moment are meeting or they were meeting at St. John's Ashfield, uh, the the hall there at St. John's Ashfield. Think about what it would be like for Mum's GC to have a permanent safe space for our kids to meet in. So like when it's raining, sometimes they have to call it off because their meeting is at the park that week and it just gets cancelled. But a a place where they could meet, where other mums, new mums in our local area could come and experience community. Because being a new mum, a first-time mum in particular, can be so lonely and isolating. Imagine what it would be like to have a community where we can reach out, care for, love and bless new mums in our area. 
Or imagine running ESL for refugees and immigrants, English as a second language, for, for refugees and immigrants who have recently moved to Australia, recently moved into the inner west, can speak very little English and and our church could be a blessing to those recently arrived refugees and immigrants to help them learn how to speak English using the Bible as a text to do that. Or imagine what it would be like to run a Christians Against Poverty cap money course for those in the inner west who are absolutely drowning in financial debt and their, their debt is out of control. What it would look like to help them walk through a journey of learning to manage finances and experience financial freedom in a way that wasn't possible. Imagine being able to run a food distribution program. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Triple CIOS New South Wales has a ministry called Hands and Feet. And what they do is they resource the local church to hand out food packages to those in their community who are in need. And so City Light Balmain, I think it's Tuesday mornings, will set up their hall, put the tables out, uh, fill it with food that gets delivered by Hands and Feet in a truck, and then people who are in the local community who are needy will come and they'll take their groceries. And those who would like to stay, sometimes stay for a meal and a conversation, a cup of coffee and a Bible study. Or imagine starting a Friday night kids club or youth ministry for all of our kids as they grow up in our church. Being able to connect with families at the local school and teenagers who are seeking for some sense of meaning and truth and significance. Imagine what it would be like to run free community courses like financial management courses for all of the young creative entrepreneurs in the inner west who are fantastically talented at their art but just don't know how to write an invoice and bill the person that they've been working for to get the money to make their trade sustainable. Imagine running parenting courses and marriage courses. Imagine having a space where we could run our Lifted Up our mental health support group and extending that to people within our community who are struggling with the burden of mental health. Imagine being visible, just having some signage, being visible in our community where people could walk past and go, oh, that's a church, that's Anchor Church. And yes, I've heard of these things that they're doing. Imagine having a space where we can record stuff like, you know, heaven forbid we have to go into another lockdown, we could have a camera set up that's not in someone's living room or someone's garage or having to drive all the way to Southwest and film in their location. Imagine having a space where we could record stuff, record podcasts and teaching and training that's filmed. Imagine all of that, let alone what it would take um, the burden off our existing ministries, our bands as they rehearse. Murray, where did you guys rehearse this week? In Murray's house, right? The band got together, they rehearsed in Murray's house. I think a few weeks ago, Josh, Josh's band had to hire a recording space somewhere that Josh personally paid for, uh, and the band met in that space to record for the next two weeks. So imagine the blessing for our bands. Imagine the blessing for our staff. Who We had staff meeting at our place this week, and you know, midway through staff meeting, Tash comes home with Levi, and Levi's toddling around. We're whiteboarding all these ideas. And Imagine having a space where our staff could have an office. Imagine having a space where we could run Alpha, where people who are exploring the deep questions of life could come and, and hear about the good news of Jesus. Imagine having a place where we could call our own for prayer and worship nights. We didn't have to keep borrowing and begging and stealing other venues or team night or, I mean, you know, yeah, we wouldn't steal a venue. Obviously, we wouldn't steal another church's building. Maybe, but um, 
training events and, and a center for um, raising up and sending out church planters. Imagine all of the possibilities that it would be for us to have a midweek space. I believe that one of the most significant obstacles to us continuing to do healthy, good, growing ministry here at Anchor Church is the lack of a midweek space to do that. And, and I, I truly believe that one of the most significant ways that we can take a step as a church, our, our next step is to secure some space midweek. It doesn't have to be very big. It just has to be something where we can do all of these midweek ministries. Now, unless, um, you know, by some absolute miracle, unless God just chooses to bless us with a free building, and that's not out of the question. I've heard of churches doing that or, or, or that God doing that for churches. But realistically, what we need to do is to lay a foundation to put our church in a position to be able to purchase a property at some point in the future, maybe next year, maybe not. But it begins by us making the sacrifices necessary to lay a foundation to put our church in a position to be able to purchase. All of the details are laid out here in your brochure. But I wanted to say this. This week I was, um, as I tend to often do, you know, just very dreamily scroll through realcommercial.com, the commercial real estate website, and just look at what's on offer in our local area. This week I found a property just down the road here, two, three blocks down from this building on... Um, Calder Street or Childer Street, right opposite Marrickville Primary School. It's a 235 square meter warehouse with a small office upstairs. Um, and it's literally right opposite the primary school there. And it's on the market for a price guide. And will you ever believe the price guide when a real estate agent puts it on there? Probably not. But they're saying price guide of $1.7 million for 235 square meters. Now, that property is the ideal type of property that I think we could be chasing after in maybe 12 months' time if we're able to lay a foundation to put our church in a position to get there, to be able to purchase a property. Now, I, I did a bit of maths. If the property is $1.7 million, and it probably isn't, just so you know, what it would take for our church to purchase that property outright, like with not, without ever having to borrow anything from the bank, all it would take is for every adult here at Anchor Church to give a gift this year of just over $4,000 and next year just over $4,000. And we would be able to purchase a property of $1.7 million like that. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone has the capacity to make a gift like that. Some of us have capacity to make gifts bigger than that. But when all of us together play our part, we can make a significant difference. The blessing of, uh, of our Build the House campaign, and I don't know if, uh, if you were like me, if you um, took your brochure home and scratched out the target of $40,000 and wrote $150,000. You probably can't read that, but I did, I did it in my little brochure there. We have an incredible, generous partner who wants to unleash generosity in our church and has agreed to a matching grant of $50,000. So every dollar we give, as a church family, will be matched. It means your gift of $500 is actually a gift of $1,000. Your gift of $1,000 is actually a gift of $2,000. They will meet everything that we give up to $50,000. And they've done that in order to stir generosity amongst us. And so, church, I want to commend this to you. On the 5th of December, 
we will be announcing the amount of money that we've been able to raise as a church family. And I would love to be able to say that we've been able to raise more than $150,000 to lay a foundation, to be in a position to purchase a property. So can I encourage you to take these home? If you are ready, if you've been praying over the last couple of weeks and you are ready, you can scan the QR code on that digital connect card in front of you and make your gift today via the PushPay app. Just make sure you select church building in the giving type there so that we know that this isn't just your ordinary tithe. You know, just like this week, you're like, hey guys, super generous this week, here's my tithe. Make sure you select the church building one. Uh, and if you're not ready, then please take this this week. You, you can do that at any point. That's the beauty of online giving. At whatever point you're ready, you can set that up. You can, you can do it via... Um, Direct deposit, all of the info is in this booklet. And I really look forward to being able to announce on the 5th of December what we've been able to achieve. Over the next two weeks, I'm hoping to work with our uh, financial team to give you a bit of an update, a progress update on where we've been at on the 21st and the 28th of November. And hopefully uh, by the 5th, we will have reached our target. So can I commend that to you today? If you're ready to give, you can do so or this week or in the coming weeks, um, please prayerfully consider the part that you can play in preparing us to secure and put down roots here in our local community. Well, let me pray for us now as we um, prepare to hear from God in His Word on what is a convicting and challenging topic. So please, um, please join me as I pray. Father, we thank You that You are good to us beyond what we deserve, uh, beyond what we need we thank you that you have blessed us abundantly and richly. This morning, as we look at your word, um, particularly as we hear your word from the context of uh, a very wealthy city and a very wealthy moment in history, Father, we pray that you would help us to sit underneath your word and where your word convicts and challenges us, Father, we pray that you would help us to be ready to step out in obedient faith. God, we pray that you would help us to see the water that we swim in and uh, help us to live as your distinctly different people. And I pray this in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I realize the, um, the really inconvenient timing of preaching a sermon series on generosity right around the time when all of the click frenzy and Black Friday sales are on and... Um, I'm, I'm really sorry, but, you know, as I've been preparing these messages, my Instagram feed is filled with click frenzy sales. And to be honest with you, I'm like, oh, this is really convicting stuff. Today's message, um, the title is called Fighting Greed and Finding Contentment. And I found this a particularly challenging uh, message to prepare and preach. But I don't know if, you, um, if you're aware, the, the most countercultural statement that has ever been made in human history, rolled off the lips of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Nine words that he said. He said this, It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That is the most countercultural statement anyone has ever made, I think. Maybe, probably. Anyway, don't hold me to it. And it's at least one of the most countercultural statements and it's so significant for us in Western culture in the 21st century because we have been formed and shaped and discipled 
to be consumers, to be takers, to be receivers. And so for Jesus to say something like it's actually more blessed to give than it is to receive kind of rattles our cage a bit. I was doing some research this week and I came across a book written by an Australian author called Karen Higgs. The book's titled Collision Course, uh, Endless Growth on a Finite Planet. Has anyone, anyone read that? Anyone heard that book? Just, just me. I didn't read the whole thing. I read a little summary of it. Um, but in it, she gives a brief history of consumerism. And it was a fascinating overview. She says that um, in the 19th century, so around the mid to late 1800s, purchasing a consumer item was restricted to a very, very small percentage of the population. Most people could not purchase an item that they wanted, a luxury item that was above their basic daily needs. And yet there began to emerge department stores that placed display windows at the front of their shop, knowing that almost everyone who walked past the front of that display window could not purchase the item that was on display but also understanding very deeply how the human psyche worked. And here were these display windows to leverage the human emotion of envy, to make the, the lower class and the middle class look up and think, if only I could be there to purchase that item. Uh, following the, the, um, the Great Depression and the, the wars around the 1920s, economists began to fear that the, the incredible surge that the Industrial Revolution had brought around that time, that what had happened was that all of the stuff that had been produced in the Industrial Revolution began to meet the basic needs of particularly American culture, that supply had met the demand. And so what they needed to do was to figure out how to increase the consumer's purchasing power. Their consumers were largely a, a group of people who had lived through a, a financial depression and a world war, and their mentality was one of being frugal and cautious and not spending more than what you needed because the future felt so uncertain. And so the solution that corporate America came up with at the time was to make the consumer what? consume more. Uh, the historian Frederick Allen said this. This is uh, what Karen Higgs says in her book, quoting Frederick Allen. Businesses had learned as never before the importance of the ultimate consumer. Unless he could be, swayed, be persuaded to buy and buy lavishly, the whole stream of six-cylinder cars and, and radios and cigarettes and road contacts, compacts and electric iceboxes would be dammed up at its outlets. Or listen to this quote that she quotes um, Edward Bernays, who is the father of modern PR. He says this, Mass production is profitable only if its rhythm can be maintained. That is, if it can continue to sell its product in steady or increasing quantity. Today's supply must actively seek to create. Did you hear that? Today's supply must actively seek to create its corresponding demand and cannot wait, uh, sorry, and cannot afford to wait until the public asks for its product. It must maintain constant touch through advertising and what? 
propaganda to assure itself the continuous demand which alone will make its costly plant profitable. Listen to this sentence here. We need things consumed, burnt up, replaced and discarded at an ever-increasing rate. This is like 1920s. What the early uh, pioneers of public relations and marketing did was to tap into the deep subconscious of human emotions and desires and, and leveraging new technology like the wireless radio and the set-top TV box that were making their way into people's homes, they began to create the demand that was required to make the Industrial Revolution continue to thrive, to make the economy continue to grow. Again, Karen Higgs quotes um, Bernays saying this, Many of man's thoughts and actions are compensatory substitutes for desires which he has been obliged to suppress. A thing may be desired not for its intrinsic worth or usefulness, but because he has unconsciously come to see it as a symbol of something else. The desire for which he is ashamed to admit to himself because it is a symbol of social position and evidence of his success. They understood the human psyche. And desire is at the very heart of human consumption. And we're not talking just to meet needs, right? This isn't I desire to eat because I am hungry or I desire to purchase an item of clothing because I am cold. No, this is consumption to fill voids, to make us feel like we matter, to give us significance, to give us status. Our world runs on discontent. Our world runs on discontent. Now, having said all of that, I'm not claiming to be an economist, right? I have no idea what would happen if all of a sudden, you know, a, a significant portion of the global population decided to pursue minimalism and simple living and perhaps Elliot, our resident economist, could, you know, speak a little bit more, you know, with a little bit more experience into, you know, meta-level economic trends and all that kind of stuff. All, all, I'm, all I'm pointing out here is that we have been formed, discipled, shaped, in a, in a negative sense, manipulated by some very significantly pow powerful people and companies, global companies that have a deep economic interest in your emotional desires, decisions, and choices. We live in a world that runs on discontent. And so with that as my very long-winded intro, what I want to talk about this morning is how we fight greed and find contentment. How we fight greed and find contentment. Now I want to say this message is for you. Every single person in this room, myself included. And it doesn't really matter whether you, whether you, you know, own a, a harbourfront property at Potts Point or you live in the Housing Commission of Waterloo, this message about greed and contentment is for all of us. You see, the reality is that greed is not just a rich person's problem. And contentment is not just a middle class possibility. These are things that are true for every single person. And today what I want to do is help you identify and fight greed and find 
the beauty of contentment in your life that would lead to us as a community living generous lives. So firstly, we're going to look at fighting greed. Fighting greed. Is everyone still with me? I realize this is not the topic you necessarily want to come to church and hear about on a Sunday morning. But this this is a profoundly countercultural vision of what it looks like to be the people of God in a culture and society that runs off the consumption of more and more and more and more. Greed is simply, this is my definition, the excessive desire of something, a selfish desire perhaps for more of one thing or another. It may be a material thing. It may not be a material thing. The Bible very closely associates greed with the biblical category of covetousness. Covetousness. Remember that from the, the Ten Commandments? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's donkey or oxen. I mean, translate that to you shall not covet your neighbor's Audi Q7 SQ8 or you know whatever car. You shall not covet your neighbor's slave or you shall not desire them. That's, that's how the word could be translated. You shall not desire them. Now, not just ordinary desire, but a an unrestrained desire, an ungoverned desire, a relentless over-desire for that thing or object. Whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor, whether you're middle class, upper class, lower class, greed, covetousness is a destructive force in our lives. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus um, is approached by uh, someone who's having a family feud with his brother about sharing inheritance. And the person says, Jesus, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus has no interest in financial advice, but he does want to dive to the deeper emotions of the heart and the desires that drive us. And he says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Thanks, bro. Against all kinds of greed, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the rich fool, you know, the guy who's made it. And he says, what, what do I do with all my, my wealth? I know I'll, I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. I'll store it up. I'll eat, drink and be merry. And God says, you're a fool because this very night your life will be demanded from you. Jesus warns, be on your guard. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. He's not talking about just monetary greed here. Greed for possessions, greed for attention, greed for success, greed for likes or power or status or position or title. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, all of it. Why? Because life doesn't consist in amassing possessions. Life doesn't consist in amassing finances. Life does not consist in amassing of power and significance drawn from our title. Life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. And we get that right. I don't think you need to be a Christian to be able to agree with what Jesus said 2,000 years ago. Of course, that makes sense. We, We know that life is much more than material wealth and the house that we live in. Obviously, life has significance with the people that we surround ourselves with, with with family, with a deep sense of meaning from our careers rather than just what they pay us. We, We understand the principle. But at the end of that parable, Jesus will say, 
It's foolish to give yourself to pursuing these things and not being rich towards God. Or in the passage that Hope read for us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, Paul will say this. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You kind of get a picture there of the, the third soil in the parable of the soil story that Jesus told. Of those who hear the word and yet the worries of life and the worries of riches choke out the word of God. People who are so enamored by the love of money that it starves out their faith and shrivels up their affection for Jesus because they've been looking to something else. They've been worshipping something else. You see, the problem here is actually not money. The problem isn't the money. The problem isn't the wealth. The problem isn't the career. The problem is the love of these things. The problem is the worship of them because they've become idols. The problem is that we make our wealth and our stuff and our positions, we make them our identity. And when those things are stripped away from us, it ruins us entirely. We make them our identity. We make them our source of security and comfort and freedom rather than having our identity located in the fact that we are adopted children of God. But yeah, I don't know about you, but um, it's very easy to locate our sense of trust and our sense of security and our, um, our concerns about the future in our insurance schemes and in our, uh, you know, our little buffer that's sitting in the bank balance and our superannuation programs. You know, so much of our sense of security sits in those things. And, and Jesus isn't saying those things are bad, but what he's saying is, that they're not the ultimate reliable source of security. They can all be stripped away from you. Just look at the impact of a global financial crisis on our super funds, on your investment portfolios. Those things can disappear overnight. We need to locate our sense of identity somewhere else. As I um, remember, at least my recollection of things, as I remember growing up in the church, I remember hearing so many sermons about, about money. It wasn't something that I think the churches that I grew up in at least were obsessed about. It wasn't something that they ignored. It was something that was spoken about. But as I remember it, I, more often than not, I left those sermons feeling guilty and not really knowing what to do. And I'm not suggesting that was the preacher's fault, right? Perhaps I had confused you know, the conviction of the Spirit with guilt. Perhaps I just hadn't listened well enough. I, I don't want to blame. I had wonderful preachers growing up. Um, but I don't think I ever was given a compelling, captivating vision of what it looked like to live a different way, other than don't be greedy. I think that was the main message I left with, don't be greedy. But what does it look like to have a heart of contentment that unleashes generosity in our lives, that lives in a way that is radically countercultural to the rest of the, the people that, we, that, that live around us. I don't know if I ever had a vision for that. And so my guess is that most of us, yeah, 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 of course, greed isn't bad. I can see that. I don't even need the Bible to know that greed is bad. It can be so destructive. We have stories of that 
secular stories of that narrative that we're familiar with. But what does it look like to live as the people of God? What I want to say, it requires us finding contentment, fighting greed and finding contentment. Definition of contentment I came across this week was this, an internal satisfaction that doesn't demand a change in external circumstances. An internal satisfaction that is not dependent on or is not demanding a change in external circumstances. Or in one word, freedom or peace. It's not about what you have or you don't have. It's actually about who we are. That's where contentment comes from. It's not just about settling for our circumstances, right? Contentment is not opposed to ambition. It's not opposed to wanting to do more. It's not opposed to taking a promotion at work. It's not opposed to any of those things. It's not about what you have or you don't have. Contentment is a settled internal trust in the one who has given you what you do have right now. It's really about trusting that what God has given us is enough. It's what contentment is about. A heart that rests in God. And a soul that is able to enjoy the blessings that God has given us and in the timing that he has given them to us. That's what contentment is. Have a look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 6. That that passage that Hope read out for us. But godliness... With contentment is what? Great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, A few verses before this, Paul is talking about those who have used godliness as a means of financial wealth. False shepherds, false pastors who are coming in with a pretense of godliness in order to strip money away from people. Perhaps like Keith's story this morning. Perhaps like maybe a story that you have experienced at a church that you had to leave because you couldn't trust. False godliness. No, Paul says that's not how it works. It's godliness with contentment that brings great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, verse six, verse 7, and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Contentment in and of itself is the gain. There is great Wealth, true wealth in this. And if there is anything that we should be chasing after in this world and pursuing, it is the settled peace that only God gives of contentment. And it is a vast wealth. He says that at at the very least, we ought to be content with our daily necessities, our daily needs being met, having Food and and covering is the word there, shelter, clothing. At the very least, we, we ought to be able to be content with having our basic needs met. And yet our problem is God has actually blessed us with way more than just our basic needs. And we struggle to be content, even with the abundance that God has given us. Contentment is great wealth. There is nothing more wealthy than someone who, irrespective of what is in their bank balance, has a deep sense of peace about their future, about their status, about their place in the world. That is beautiful 
in a culture that is hungry for more and climbing the ladder of succession. Contentment is not dependent on our circumstances. Paul will say that in Philippians chapter 4. You know the favorite verse of every athlete, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not actually about sporting prowess. It's not about the ability to achieve the win in a grand final. It's actually about the ability to be content, which is probably more difficult, if we're honest, than winning a gold medal or whatever it was that they won. Have a look at what Paul says in Philippians 4 chapter 12. I have learned the secret of being content in any And every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I have learnt the secret of being content. What's the secret? Let us know, Paul, please. The secret is knowing that Jesus, in fact, is the most satisfying thing that this world has to offer. That being an adopted son or daughter, an heir of God's kingdom, makes us spiritually filthy rich. The secret of contentment is understanding that our worth and our value and our security and our identity are not tied to our circumstances, but tied to who we are as children of God. You know, a number of years ago, um, McCrindle Research released a, a paper called The Happiness Barometer. Uh, apparently, there's the World Happiness Day sometime in March. And uh, they did a bunch of research, asked a number of questions uh, about people's sense of happiness in connection with their wealth. And one of the things they found was that when they asked a question that was based on a, uh, a you know, an objective measure of comparison, what they found was that most people who were in the upper tier of, of, you know, those who were significantly more wealthy than the average felt that they should be more happy than everyone else. But when they asked a more subjective question about how you personally felt, irrespective of comparison, what they found is that those people who were significantly below the average earning scored the highest in terms of personal sense of happiness. Happiness, even, you know, our our social research is telling us is not connected with what we have and what we don't have. And then Paul will give uh, an eternal perspective on this. In verse 7, he says, We brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. We begin and end life the same way, naked and empty-handed. Right? That, that's how it goes from the very beginning and the very end. It's the same story. We came in with nothing. We leave with nothing. When we die, we leave everything behind. Paul says, think about the eternal perspective on this. John Stott, the great um, English scholar, says, Possessions are only the traveling luggage of time, not the stuff of eternity. Hebrews 13.5 God says this, his promise to us, keep your lives free from the love of money and content and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I seek you. You know what the PR and the marketing person is trying to manipulate is your fear. What if I miss out? What if I don't have enough in my superannuation? What, 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 if, what if there's another global financial crisis and I lose everything? 
everyone is trying to manipulate your subconscious emotions. Fear of, of, of not being viewed like your neighbors are viewed. Fear of your house not looking like their house. Church, hear the promises of God. This is what he says. I will be faithful to you and I promise never to leave you and abandon you. Fear not. You don't need to be afraid because God has promised that he will be with you. So how do we respond to a challenging message like this about fighting greed and finding contentment in our lives? There are so many ways that we could respond to this. But I, I want to suggest this at the very least, that when we, when we find contentment, when we pursue contentment, when we, when we are at peace with where God has us and what he has blessed us with, it allows us to lift our focus off ourselves, to lift our focus off our circumstances, to lift our focus off what we desire and allow us to focus on other people. When we're content with our relationships that God has blessed us with, it means we can stop trying to you know, network or just use other people for what value they can bring to our lives. It means that we don't engage with, with people to fill the emotional void that, that is inside of us, effectively just using them. When we're content with our, our houses, we're free from trying to impress everyone. Because we know that this is just an earthly tent for a period of time and the Father has a, a house, a mansion awaiting for us with many rooms in it. When we're content with our suffering that we are walking in at the moment, it, it can take us off, our eyes off the pain that's real and help us to see the ways that God is growing us and shaping us in a season of suffering. When we're content in our relationship status, your singleness, or in your imperfect marriage that's really frustrating you. We can feel more acutely the sufficiency of Jesus that another person simply cannot offer to us. When we're content with a messy house right, that's not perfectly clean, we can have people over. You know, one, of the, one of the obstacles to hospitality is that we think our house has to be in perfect order before we can have a guest over. When we're content with uh, our career, it means that we don't view our fellow employees as people to climb up on in order to get the promotion that we so desire. And we can actually come under them and serve them in ways. And in fact, my suggestion is when we do that, we become the types of people that our, if our bosses are paying attention, we'll want to promote. Contentment allows us to shift the focus off ourselves and onto other people. Or perhaps another application for this is what does it look like for us? And I realize I've gone so long this morning. I'm going I'm to finish up real soon. Perhaps the application for us is to think about what it looks like for us to live simply. One of the things I was thinking about this week is what does it look like for us to do Christmas as a family differently? And perhaps it doesn't mean an overflowing stocking of plastic toys that last two days and then end up in the bin because that looks like abundance and generosity on Christmas morning. What does it look like for us to pursue simplicity? You know, the fast fashion industry is driven by greed and discontent. And the, 
the problem with it is, the, the damage that it causes is stuff that we don't get to see because it's buried somewhere in a, a sweatshop in China or Bangladesh. I'd encourage you guys to pick up the, um, the Baptist World AIDS um, fashion guide to ethical fashion where they, they rank and, and, uh, and give um, fashion designers, whatever, companies a score as to how ethically they produce their items. There is probably a number of ways. We could slow down a bit and not be so busy so that we can create margin to be generous with our time. There's countless ways as we foster contentment in our hearts and in our lives that will allow us to lift our gaze from ourselves and to focus on the people that God has placed around us. As the band comes up, let me, let me close by saying this. Finding contentment. Finding contentment is finding a treasure. It is finding great wealth. And it is something that circumstance and downturn and loss cannot rob from us. Finding contempt will allow us to ride through the seasons of difficulty and the troughs in the market with a deep sense of inner peace and rest and trust in God. It is a life of profound freedom and it is beautifully attractive to a watching world that is doing the exact opposite. And my prayer and hope for us as a church this morning is that we can pursue contentment with everything that we've got living lives that are radically generous, fueled by a deep sense that God has blessed us richly with way more than we need to enjoy and to bless others with. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, we thank you that you are abundantly good. And God, we know that this is so difficult for us to do. In our cultural moment, we are so caught up in the relentless pursuit of more. Father, a message like this challenges me. It challenges us. And we need your spirit. God, please transform the way that we think about our purchasing habits and the way that we spend our money and the way that we spend our time and the way that we use the houses that you've blessed us with and and the emotional capacity that you have given us not to hoard, but to use to bless other people. Father, help us to be deeply content with wherever you've placed us right now. That you would grow us, stretch us, make us people of faith that would bless those around us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus.